The Law School of America Formality Ordinarily, contracts do not have to be in writing to be enforceable. However, certain types of contracts do have to be reduced to writing to be enforceable, to prevent frauds and perjuries, hence the name Statute of Frauds, which also makes it not a misnomer, fraud need not be present to implicate the Statute of Frauds. Typically, the following types of contracts implicate the Statute of Frauds. Land, including leases over a year and easements. Suretyships, promises to answer for the debts, defaults, or miscarriages of another. Consideration of marriage, not to actually get married but to give a dowry, for example. Goods over a certain amount of money, usually $500, as in the UCC. Contracts that cannot be performed within one year. For example, a two-year employment contract naturally cannot be performed within one year. In many states lifetime contracts are not considered to fall within the statute of frauds reasoning that life can end at any time, certainly within one year from the time of execution. In other states, notably Illinois, contracts requiring performance for a lifetime are covered by the statute. The statute of frauds requires the signature of the party against whom enforcement is sought, the party to be sued for failure to perform. For example, Bob contracts with a Smith company for two years of employment. The employer would need to sign the writing. Moreover, the writing for purposes of satisfying the statute of frauds does not need to be the actual contract. It might be a letter, memorializing and formalizing an oral arrangement already made over the phone. Therefore, the signed writing does not need to contain all of the terms that the parties agreed to. At common law, only the essential terms were required in the signed writing. Under the UCC, the only term that must be present in the writing is the quantity. The writing also does not need to be one document, but if there are multiple documents, they must all obviously refer to the same transaction, and they all must be signed. The signature itself does not need to be a full name. Any mark made with the intent to authenticate the writing is satisfactory, such as initials or even such as an X by an illiterate party. A contract that may otherwise be unenforceable under the statute of frauds may become enforceable under the doctrine of part performance. If the party seeking enforcement of the contract has partially or fulfilled its duties under the contract without objection from the other party, the performing party may be able to use its performance to hold the other party to the terms of the contract. No writing is required when goods have been received and accepted. Payment has been made and accepted. Goods are specially manufactured, there is no market for them, or under the UCC, the party against whom enforcement is being sought admits a certain quantity of goods. The last exception applies up to the quantity admitted, which may include the entire contract. This reversed the rule at common law that permitted a defendant to testify that he indeed contracted with the plaintiff but refuses to perform because it is not in writing. Privity. Under the principle of privity, a person may not reap the benefits or be required to suffer the burdens of a contract to which they were not a party. Breach of contract. Performance. Jacob and Young's Incorporated v. Kent, 1921 a builder who used the wrong kind of piping in construction of a building was entitled to payment, as he had substantially performed the work, but subject to a deduction for the difference in value of the wrong piping. Damages. The primary remedy for breach of contract is expectation damages, or benefit of the bargain. At law, this is monetary compensation. At equity, it can be specific performance or an injunction, among other things. For example, Dan and Pam have an enforceable contract for the sale of Dan's watch. The price they agreed to was $10. The actual value of the watch is $15.
Pam would be able to successfully pursue a claim for $5. She might elect this route if she did not want to keep the watch but sell it to a third party for a profit. Alternatively, Pam could successfully pursue a claim whereby the court would order Dan to sell the watch for the original price. She might elect this route if she actually wanted the watch for herself. The remedy for quasi-contracts, contracts implied in law, is quantum merit, the reasonable or fair market value of goods or services rendered. The remedy for promissory estoppel is reliance damages. Examples Hawkins v. McGee, 1929, the plaintiff's hand was injured by electrical wiring, and the doctor promised surgery to give him a 100% good hand. The operation failed, and the plaintiff won damages to the value of what he expected to get, compared to what he had. However, he received no extra compensation for pain and suffering. United States Naval Institute v. Charter Communications Incorporated, 1991, Punitive Damages and Efficient Breach, The Hunt for Red October. SNEP v. United States, 1980, Restitution Damages. Specific Performance. Specific performance occurs when a court orders a party to perform a specific act. In the context of a contract, specific performance requires that a party in breach fulfill its duties under the contract. Arbitration. Parties are permitted to agree to arbitrate disputes arising from their contracts. Under the Federal Arbitration Act, which has been interpreted to cover all contracts arising under federal or state law, arbitration clauses are generally enforceable unless the party resisting arbitration can show unconscionability, fraud or something else that undermines the entire contract. Quasi-contract. The terms quasi-contract and contract implied in law are synonymous. There are two types of quasi-contract. One is an action in restitution. The other is unjust enrichment. Note, therefore, that it is improper to say that quasi-contract, implied-in-law contract, and unjust enrichment are all synonymous, because unjust enrichment is only one type of the broader category of quasi-contracts, contracts implied-in-law. Contracts implied-in-law differ from contracts implied-in-fact in that contracts implied-in-law are not true contracts. Contracts implied-in-fact are ones that the parties involved presumably intended. In contracts implied in law, one party may have been completely unwilling to participate, as shown below, especially for an action in restitution. There has been no mutual assent, in other words, but public policy essentially requires a remedy. Unjust enrichment. The elements of this cause of action are Conferral of a benefit on another. The other's knowledge of the benefit. The other's acceptance or retention of the benefit. Circumstances requiring the other to pay the fair value for the benefit to avoid inequity. Britton v. Turner, 1834, an employee who left work on a farm after nine months, but had contracted to be paid $120 at the end of one year, was entitled to receive some payment, $95, even though the contract was not completed. Restitution. The full name of this cause of action is restitution for actions required to preserve another's life or health. It is available when a party supplies goods or services to someone else, even though the recipient is unaware or does not consent. Unawareness and non-consent can both be due to unconsciousness, but the latter also includes incapacity, which in turn refers to mental incompetence and or infancy minority. The elements of this cause of action are The supplier acts unofficiously, that is, is not interfering in the affairs of the recipient for no reason. The supplier acts with the intent to charge money for doing so. The goods or services are necessary to prevent the recipient from suffering serious bodily injury or pain. The recipient is unable to consent. 
the supplier has no reason to know that the recipient would not consent if they could, and if the recipient is extremely mentally incompetent or young in objects, the non-consent is immaterial. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America